This morning we uh, once again give our attention to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're actually going to focus on uh, one part of verse 11, which uh, speaks of the schemes or uh, methods of the devil. But I will read verses 10 and 11. And Paul writes this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Let's pray. (coughs) Now, Father, there's uh, so much swirls in our heads at any given moment. The things we have to do, the desires we have, the regrets that, that plague us. A thousand things, Lord. But in these next minutes, we desire to give ourselves to your word, to its truth, to its application to our lives, to the hope found in it because of all that you are for us in Jesus Christ. To that end, Lord, we ask that you would descend upon us, that you would open our ears to hear what you have to say, that it might strike our hearts with particular power for the glory of Christ and his work within us. For we ask these things in his name. Amen. (coughs) Satan is a schemer. He's a schemer because he has all sorts of tricks to to lure people into sin. And one of his uh, tricks is is well illustrated, I think, by a uh, uh, a police informant in, uh, in Chicago. He was one of these guys who, uh, you know, like most informants do for police departments, got himself caught between a rock and a hard place. It was either be an informant or go to jail. And so he became an informant. And his particular um, area of, um, well, let's, let's say his peers, uh, tended to be drug dealers. And, uh, and so he, as it was, incredibly successful in getting drug dealers to either sell him drugs or sell drugs to another undercover cop. And uh, several years later, a, uh, one of the Chicago newspapers asked him how it was that he was so successful at what he did. And uh, he said, well, you know, he said, it was like this. He says, I, I know how to offer a good challenge. He says, I would say to them something like this. Everybody says they can deliver, but you look a little young. Or everybody says they can deliver, but you look a little old. Everybody says they can deliver, but you know, I don't think you're streetwise enough to, to pull it off. He said, and the first thing that would happen is these people would say to themselves, yeah, I'm old enough. I'm not too old. I got street smarts. I can do it. And so in, in order to, to prove him wrong, these people would go off and, and either sell him or the undercover cop the drugs and end up getting caught. See, this informant understood their psychology. He knows that none of us hate to be told, or none of us like to be told, that we can't do something, especially if we think we can. So the first thing we do is we're going to 
Show them we can do it. Strike out on our own strength and prove ourselves to be X, Y, or Z. Well, Satan is also very good at psychology. He uses the same thing, for example, in our lives, encouraging us to to leave our dependence upon God behind and strike out on our own. And how many times have each of us fallen there? But that's only one of his many schemes. He has thousands of schemes. In fact, if you read some of the Puritan uh, uh, studies on the devil, uh, you, will, you will be amazed at the, uh, uh, the detail that they can go into. Uh, uh, William Gurnall's uh, classic, A Christian in Complete Armor, the unabridged edition goes about 960 pages. 960 pages of the way the devil gets at you. And if you want to come into our own era or you know, just our past era, you might look at uh, um, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He had a study in Ephesians and uh, a, a full 52 of his sermons in that series were on the devil and his schemes and the way in which he works and the armor that God has given us to resist him. And then you can pick up the tiny little you know, Puritan paperback by, uh, by Brooks, you know, uh, 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 Satan's devices, and uh, you know that's that's a mere 150 pages. So I mean, if you really want a brief treatment, you can go there. The reason these people have so much to write about is because Satan is so good at what he does. He is a schemer. This morning, I just want to I want to remind us of just how good he is at it. Because I want to focus on three areas in which he tends to be very, um, very focused. And I trust that you will find every one of them you've committed hundreds of times. He has snookered you hundreds of times in each one of these areas. They are so common that sometimes we just forget what they are. But they're incredibly effective to render us sad and disheartened in our relationship with God, which ultimately is his his great joy. So, let's begin. The first is that he says he he likes to confuse us about ourselves. Let me explain what I mean by that. We all have a natural tendency, I think, to, to think that every thought that comes into our minds is our own. Right? We do, don't we? If it pops into our head, we assume it's ours. But that's not always the case. And it really, uh, it bears some careful distinctions. Because, at least in my estimation, and from what I've read, there are at least three voices that we tend to hear. But they all sound the same. And it's important to discern the difference between the three. The first voice is the voice of the Christian. Because we have been born again, because we have been given the Spirit of God, God has placed within us by that Spirit new desires and thoughts and inclinations and passions, things that honor Him and glorify Him, that exhilarate our soul, that call us up to worship, to love, to adore, and to obey Him. And that voice, if you will, is the voice of his spirit speaking to who we are as new men and women in Jesus Christ. At the same time, we have that remnant of our old nature still living within us, 
And that fallen part of us also has passions and inclinations and thoughts and desires, but they are the very opposite of the new nature. What I want to draw out here is that right from the get-go, from the moment we become Christians, we have two voices in our heads. One, given to us by God, that represents really who we now are, the true self in Jesus Christ, that which is going to survive this world and go to the next, and that which God literally has cut off as part of our old slavery to sin, and is in fact dying within us, but still has a very important effect upon us. And that tension, those two voices, they... We hear them all the time. And if we are not careful to distinguish between them, we will assume that it's all me. And that every one of those thoughts is legitimate. Now the reason this is important is because those aren't the only two that we hear. There is a third voice. And it doesn't happen all the time. But there is Satan, the devil, his minions, his his demons are capable of placing thoughts in your mind that are not yours and then basically making a very hasty retreat. You remember uh, the parable in Matthew chapter 13 where the enemies of this, this farmer went into his field at night and they sowed tares, right, to grow up among his wheat. And then they retreated, basically, to, to watch the fun, if you will. The destruction of his good field of wheat. Because of all the tares that grew up in its midst. And that's essentially what the devil can do. He is capable of sowing within our minds, beyond our capacity to actually perceive it, thoughts that are not our own. The problem is, that when they come to us, we almost automatically assume that's my thought. That's me. And assuming ownership for that, which in fact is not ours, is assuming ownership of something that is awful. Because it really does not reflect who we are, that new person in Jesus Christ, And to be able to discern the difference between those voices is crucial to maintaining, I think, some spiritual mental sanity. Because if, if, if all you do is think that every thought is yours, you're going to be wrapped around a tree thinking, oh, I had this wonderful, glorious sort of thought of God, and then over here I had this terrible thought, this horrible thought that I can't even believe came into my mind at all. We try and figure out, how, how, how can I be both? Or this other? That's the importance of distinguishing between these three, if you will, different voices. And see, this helps explain, doesn't it, how it is that we can pop out of bed first thing in the morning and, and find the most disgusting, untoward, uninvited thoughts coming to our minds that fast you say where did that come from I didn't even dream that I didn't want that what's that about or you're going through your day 
And all of a sudden, something catches you sideways and you say, where did that come from? Or you're kneeling down to pray. And the next thing you know, your mind is out there thinking about stuff that just has popped into your mind. That does what? Draws you away from God. And moreover, discourages you about what it is to be a saint and to pray and then to find yourself daydreaming instead. So what's critical? What is really critical is to identify the awful thoughts and feelings and inclinations that come for what they are, not that they actually are you. The you that God has caused to be born again. The you that pleases him. The you that will one day inhabit eternity. But they are either part of your fallen nature or the disturbance of that nature by demonic spirits or the word of the devil himself being placed into your mind. But you must not own them as so somehow they are actually reflective of who you truly are in Jesus Christ. Because the old, Paul says, is gone. And the new has come. And it is crucial that we embrace the new. That we pursue the spiritual health of that new creation. And that means recognizing, at least in this regard... That when those things come to us, they are not part and parcel of the new, but stand in opposition to it, and therefore are as much our enemy as the devil is himself. Moreover, when the devil does this, what what, what happens to your soul? Don't you feel accused? Yes, you do. It's almost as though it's almost as though the devil wraps uh, God's name on an arrow and then shoots it through your conscience because he wants you to believe that the Holy Spirit is, is just he's disgusted with that thought disgusted with that desire disgusted with that inclination that's come into your mind and it's crucial that we understand again that that's not the way the Holy Spirit works Because the Holy Spirit's business is to point us to Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ we find forgiveness for sin. Every sin. Sin of our inclinations, of our passions, of our thoughts, our desires, of our actions and attitudes. All of it. Satan's the accuser. Look at the book of Job. The book of Job is a... It's a long book. I don't think I'm ever going to preach out of that book. But there's some important lessons in that book. And one of them is this. That Job's friends, okay, his friends, his buddies, the people he trusted, thought that he was under the judgment of God, sitting around with boils, losing all of his family and his wealth, because he was a hypocrite. And he had displeased God in some way. And so they came and they sat next to him and they gave him that good news. What a blessing. But they were wrong. We know from the get-go. 
that the reason Job encountered those difficulties was because God was using him as an example of his grace and power against the evil taunts of the devil himself. And so don't believe the accusations of the evil one against you. They hold no weight. Not in heaven, nor in your own soul. So don't countenance them, ever. The voice of the Holy Spirit points you to the reality of your forgiveness in Jesus Christ and his power to protect you. And not to somehow that you're some piece of scum not worthy of the love of God. Well, I mean, that's true. But that's not what the Holy Spirit says. So my counsel to you, if I dare. So when these kinds of thoughts come into your mind, don't own them as if somehow they are a legitimate expression of who you are in Jesus Christ. But like a bird that lands on your head, don't let it build a nest there either. Shoo it away. By the truth of the scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit. And trust God to continue to move you closer and closer towards him. Well, the second scheme of the devil is also pretty familiar to us. And that's that he wants to cause division between believers. As we know, unity between believers is a, uh, is a blessing of God. If you look at uh, Psalm 133, you see David talking about um, the blessing that it is to be in fellowship with one another. And it's really interesting, the language he uses is language of, of coming down. He uses the word descending three times. He says this, it's like the precious oil on the, on the head descending on the beard. On the beard of Aaron, descending on the collar of the robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, descending on the mountains of Zion. In other words, David's point here is that the blessings of God to join us together as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ by his spirit, with a common love of Jesus, is a blessing that comes down to us from above. It's not something that we that we manufacture on our own because we've gotten together in this little club. We're here because his spirit has brought us here and he's, he's joined us as his, as his people to one another as brothers and sisters. And this provides a rich and unique fellowship, something that we ought to deeply, deeply treasure. I read this little quip by Carol Kent. She's a a Christian writer and speaker. She said this. She said, one day when my son Jason was young, she said, we were eating breakfast together and I had on an old pair of slacks and an old fuzzy sweater and he flashed his baby blues at me, she says, over his cereal bowl and says, Mommy, you look so pretty today. And she writes, I didn't even have makeup on. So I said, honey... Why would you say I look pretty today? Normally I'm dressed up and wearing high heels. Listen to his answer. He said, when you look like that, I know you're going someplace. But when you look like this, I know you're all mine. (laughs) That little boy, he 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 just treasured the idea of being with his mom. Of knowing that she wasn't going to be going out somewhere. 
And so it is in the fellowship of the church. We treasure one another. We delight in our in our times together, whether it's prayer, whether it's eating, whether it's working, whether it's praying, whether it's crying, it doesn't matter what it is. It's a sweet expression of, of love's relationship. This is a deep and abiding blessing of God to us. It's the place where we can be ourselves, the, the place where we have a sense of belonging, the place where we receive help and encouragement, admonition, exhortation. It's the place that we're loved. Really loved. And, just as importantly, have the opportunity to return that love, to bathe others in the love that we receive from God as well. And this, this unity, this fellowship is precisely the thing that the devil wants to attack. And and that's one of the reasons, for instance, that Jesus so powerfully prays in John 17 that our unity might not be fallen apart, might not be attacked, might not be dissolved. That's why he wants us to be willingly and quickly reconciled to one another. Why we shouldn't take communion unless we have made sure that so far as it lies within us, we have been reconciled to everyone that we know. You see divisions. Paul writes the divisions in in Corinth. You cannot read the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians without recognizing that there were deep division in that congregation. And he addresses it because it's such a... such an anomaly for a Christian congregation to actually be like that. In fact, he points it out in this very epistle that we are to be, as he says in uh, chapter 4, verse 3, diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And how is it that Satan wants to disrupt that? Well, I put it to you. How quickly... How quickly can the devil set a thought in your mind which is critical and ungracious of another person? How fast can that happen? Just like that. You and I both know that if you don't immediately confess it, turn from it, recognizing recognizing it for what it is, you're going to become critical, you're going to become bitter, and you're going to become distant. And you know what happens when we become bitter and critical and distant? You begin to shift the blame to them. All of your sin is actually them. It's their fault. You no longer take responsibility for your own sin, but you begin to grumble and complain in bitterness against your brethren as if they, in fact, have done you wrong when, in fact, it's your own hardness of heart It is your own unrepentant spirit which refuses to be reconciled and to confess your responsibility for your own sin. This, brethren, is one of the most corrosive poisons in the soul. That we should allow that to grasp us and carry it around in some self-righteous manner as if somehow we have a right to be like that. Brethren, it ought not to be like that. We must not be like that. 
Because when we are, we become separated from those whom God has given to us for our spiritual benefit, our joy, our health, and our encouragement. Listen to John's warning in his first epistle. He says, The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. That's beautiful. You know, when we're in fellowship, when we're reconciled, when we're not grumbling and complaining and blaming others, when we're not sowing disunion among the brethren, that's the kind of fellowship we have. But listen to the next sentence. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Brethren, if you allow the divisiveness of Satan to enter your heart, you will become blind. Blind and separated from those God has given to you for your joy and spiritual well-being. The third scheme of Satan is to draw us away from God. Let's face it, Satan hates God, he hates you too. So he has a thousand ways that he'll try and do that, but I'm only going to look at one this morning, and that is to tempt us to doubt God's good providence and to complain against it. The reason we read the, the, the text in Matthew chapter 4 this morning is because there's a, there's a very important lesson there, I think. You remember, as we read, that Jesus had been led by the Holy Spirit out into the desert, been fasting for 40 days and nights. 40 days and nights didn't mean literal 40 days and nights, but a very long, protracted period of time. We don't know exactly when it was going to end, but he was out there, and the devil approached him and basically said, I can tell you're hungry. You know what, why don't you turn these, these stones here into some bread and, you know, have something to eat, feel a little better. Of course, Jesus responded to him, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God. And the devil just turns right around and he says, Well, well, how about all these beautiful treasures and pleasures of the world? You know, if you're feeling a little lonely, you know, you're feeling just like, like a little comfort, man, I got it for you right here. Jesus says, No. And he says, well, um, he tries the third one, right? How about this? Cast yourself off the temple and see how true God's word is. You believe God's word. God's word says the devil, or says the angels aren't going to let you fall down and get hurt. So, hey, enjoy the ride down and you'll get caught at the bottom. Jesus says, no, we won't do that. Now, when we look at this, this passage... The traditional way of approaching it is this. We see the three ways that Jesus responded to these three temptations. Right? You bring the word. Okay? You don't presume on God. And you make sure that uh, uh, whatever the other one is. I'm sorry. It skips my mind. But I want to suggest that there's another lesson here as well. An even deeper temptation that undergirds all of it. And that is that Satan is is appealing to the fact that Jesus' circumstances were so miserable 
And we're such a change from what he'd had before he came out in the desert. That he was dissatisfied with God and God's providence. Why did God bring me out here? Why did God leave you alone without anybody to, to be around and talk to for 40 days? Why did he leave you stumbling through this wilderness where you could get hurt? That's God's good providence? And you begin to see just how evil that temptation is. Because there was one of the major temptations Jesus faced in the desert was whether or not he was going to complain against God's good providence to have him in that hard place to begin with. Let alone resisting the other temptations that the devil literally put in his face. It is, brethren, a temptation that comes to every single one of us. When the familiar, when the comfortable are taken away from us, the providence of God... We're left unsure of our future, whether it's today, or tomorrow, or any other day. When we're riddled with concern and anxiety about what may or may not happen. Brethren, we are, to a person, tempted to complain against the good providence of God on our behalf. And the reason's not hard to find, either. Because nothing draws us away from God quicker than having him ruin our plans. Isn't that true? If the present circumstances are not what we want, we are immediately of a mind that his goodness and his power and his mercy toward me have failed. And that, brethren, raises our hackles. We get upset. We get angry. Suddenly it's God's fault. God's doing this to me. And the corollary, which we don't ever want to verbalize, at least to ourselves, is I don't deserve this pain. I don't deserve this disappointment. I don't deserve this sadness, this misery. After all, I've been good to God. I've been good to my neighbors. I deserve a pain-free life. I deserve a life full of personal peace and affluence. I didn't, I didn't sign on for this. <coughs> now, of course, let's, let's face it. We, we, we can sanitize all this so well that it never comes across quite as abruptly and ugly as I've just put it. Right? Because that really gets down and dirty. And we don't want to get down there about what we really do think sometimes. But this is what happens to us. It's what happens when we buy the lie that we can have it all here. When we forget the teaching of Scripture that we are but strangers and sojourners on the earth. We are pilgrims, brethren. And we ought to have few bags and them packed lightly. This is not our home. And to doubt and to doubt God's good providence towards us showcases our doubt that God in every area is untrustworthy 
and is not good because God's providence touches everything in our lives and in the lives of our family, our loved ones, our brethren, our neighbors, everyone. And if that happens, we become embittered towards him. And that's tragic. That's tragic. Don't let that happen to you. Over the course of five years, there was a man in Passaic, New Jersey, by the name of Mike Marin. i got to read this because it's hard to believe. He endured, listen to this, 83 muggings, was hospitalized 20 times. In achieving that record, he was knifed, shot at twice, bludgeoned with a metal pipe, lost several teeth, was robbed of $2,000 in cash, several bags of groceries, and four automobiles. According to newspaper reports, Passaic police offered Marin a walkie-talkie as a quick way of summoning help. But he turned them down, saying... It would only be taken from me. (laughs) Brethren, the schemes and the attacks of the devil come against us with the same rapidity. Every day, every single day, the devil is trying to keep us in a sad, doubting, and questioning condition by making our lives miserable. And he does it by messing with our minds. He does it by, by causing divisions within the body in our relationships and by tempting us to doubt the good providence of God in our lives regardless of our circumstances. Brethren, the schemes of the devil are slippery, subtle, powerful, everywhere. But as we will see, the armor of the Lord far more powerful and will enable us to stand against such schemes as these. Be encouraged. Be heartened. Be strong in the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, our deep, deep desire is to acknowledge to you as hard as it might be These things are true of us. And we wish they were not. We see in our weakness and our fallenness, we see in our giving into temptation, that we do these very things. But at the same time, we recognize that they are not part of our new nature. They do not, they do not fit within the new identity, the new person that you have made us. And I pray, therefore, that we would see them for what they really are. That we would take heart in the way you see us and seeing your love for us in Christ. That you see us as perfect in him. That we would rejoice and be glad and in the strength that that brings to us continue to pursue you and to be faithful to put on the armor that you have given to us that we may stand against the wiles of the devil to your glory and to your honor. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.